Hey, Max. Hey, Josh. How's it going? Oh, hey. Good. How are you? Pretty good. It's uh, podcast time again. Sure is. Pretty excited. So this month's guest is Leanna Keith, who's a flautist, flutist, improviser, composer, and a good friend of mine who I've had the pleasure of working with and making music together. She operates in super wide-spanning genres, Western classical music, new music, freely improvised stuff is on a ton of jazz records and was nominated for Emerging Artist of the Year from Earshot Jazz this year. I've heard she even plays some taiko drums too. Definitely. There's a lot to talk about a lot of stuff. So she's got a sick album out called Tarot that we're going to get to dig into. It's so good. Let's start talking to Liana. Let's do it. Whoa. Hey, Liana. How's it going? Hello. Hello. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks for being here. We are so excited that you're here. Uh, So I want to get started right away and ask you, how did you get started on the flute or music in general if you didn't start on the flute? Yeah. Great question. Um, So I started on piano when I was four. Um, Technically, I was already in ballet at three, so I was already like induced in classical music at that point. But Mm -hmm. um, yeah, my hands were very, very small. And so I kind of took a couple years off of piano for them to grow a bit. Um, But I didn't really dive into music until I started the flute um, in sixth grade, which occurred almost entirely out of spite. Spite? (laughs) Spite. Why do you play the flute out of spite? (laughs) (laughs) Or how does that work? Basically, what happened was when I was in sixth grade, I was determined to play the flute. It was my favorite instrument out of all the orchestral instruments. And if I wasn't going to play the flute, I wanted to play percussion. I wanted to play the drums really, really bad. Yeah, that's really Um, funny because everyone always (laughs) told me that I should play the flute, but I ended up playing drums. Hey, there it is. (laughs) Um, So I told my band teacher this on the day where you get to, you know, pick your instrument and all that. And uh, she looked at my face and she was like, actually, your lip shape is completely wrong for flute. You'll never be able to play the flute. You have to play the clarinet. Um, so I played the clarinet for approximately two months. And at that point in time, my dad, who was a huge Jethro Tull fan, uh, decided he wanted to be Jethro Tull and bought himself a flute, in which case I then promptly stole it and brought it to class and said, I'm playing the flute now. Um, so that's how I got started on the flute. Rock on. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so that is a fascinating story, but I want to rewind even further back because you told me, or you just said that your uh, the flute is your favorite instrument and was your favorite instrument all the way back then. What were you listening to? What what captured your attention and, and how, yeah, how did it capture you that way? Sure. Um, when I was a little kid, my musical listening choices were very specific and also very odd. Um, My mom was insistent that I listen to classical radio constantly. um, And my dad, on the other hand, was insistent that I listen to Pink Floyd. Uh, So I had these sort of background sounds happening all the time, in addition to a lot of like traditional Chinese music that we listen to a lot in my family. Um, But the classical radio was almost always constantly on. And it was something where I noticed that anytime there was this beautiful flowing fancy solo, it was always the flute and the flute solo Mm. was always the one that drew me in. So yeah, Hmm. I had sort of that flute sound in my head at a very young age. Wow. Cool. 
Um, you're kind of probably known for a lot of improvisation these days, right? When did that yes. start entering the picture? Yeah. Um, later than most people, I think. Uh, I started improvising when I was in my undergrad, um, specifically because I knew a fiddler. And he was like, Leanna, you got to improvise with me. And I was kind of just like, I have no earthly clue how to do that. Um, That terrifies me. No. And he's like, no, no, no. You're going into the practice room. We are going to do this. And he just kept doing that until eventually I was like, actually, you know, this is this is actually not so bad. This is this is actually pretty fun. Um, So after working with him for a while and not really like in Uh, like fiddle style even just improvising in general um i started playing in new music ensembles that oftentimes had moments that were sort of in the improv realm whether they were like instruction based pieces or game based pieces or things like that where you did have to sort of come up with things on the fly and i felt like the more i did those the more comfortable i got with that sort of concept but i don't think that my like improv really took off until i moved to seattle and started playing with some of the improvisers here um who absolutely blow my mind i think i learned something every single time i play with heather bentley uh incredible violist in town who's kind of like uh the goddess of improv in our city so um yeah i think i've learned a lot recently and very quickly and i'm very grateful for that that's wow. super super cool yeah having grown up in a western classical music background from my, my piano background i identify with being really really terrified of improvisation when i got started and it's interesting how your path into improvisation was very, very different from my path into improvisation. But yet here we are making music together sometimes, and that's really cool. Yeah. So uh, one of the big things that we want to talk about on this episode is an album that you put out in early 2021, I believe, called Tarot. And that's tarot as in tarot card, not tarot as in tarot root. (laughs) If it's spelled, people can tell, but I'm just talking. So now people know. So what's this project all about? Can you tell us about the concept and how you came up with it? Sure. So this was January 2021. And up until that point, um, in 2020, I started off doing lots and lots and lots of live streams, just constantly trying to make up for all the gigs that I had lost and make up for a lot of income. And I burned myself out so fast. Mm-hmm. Um, so by the time, I want to say August rolled around I shut down creatively like entirely I just I kind of hadn't processed everything that was happening at the time um, between COVID and my partner was diagnosed with cancer in August a lot of things hit all at once and I just couldn't make music anymore (laughs) Um, so fast forward to January 2021 I just got out of surgery I had been taking a few weeks off to recover I hadn't played like anything creative in months and I finally kind of exploded. Um, So I turned my closet into a makeshift uh, recording studio and then I decided that I was going to record an album in three days. Three days? Whoa. (laughs) Uh, So For some reason, I remember a month. Three days is a short timeline. I, 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 I had it in my head for a month. 
but I did not. I did all the recording in a very brief sprint, essentially. Whoa. Um, so what I did was I took a tarot deck and I drew cards. And so for every card that I drew, I improvised something. I wrote down a couple of notes about what I had done and what the card was, and then I move on. And I did this until I had probably around 16 tracks. And then from there, I just cut and cut and cut and then edited. From there, you get the amount of tracks that are currently on the album. So I did cut down quite a bit. Um, But that was the process of the tarot album. So they're all just improv. Just for visuals here, are we talking like a Harry Potter-sized closet? Or is this like (laughs) coats in the background? Like, I just want to visualize this whole endeavor. Yeah, it's a walk-in closet. Um, okay. That, yeah. <laughs> so Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Kind of. You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah I had like a door. Closet. I had to sort of like shimmy a bunch of power cables underneath the door, though. So like it wasn't like the best setup in the world. And luckily the closet already had like a light in it, so I didn't have to figure out. I was going to ask if you could see. Yes. I, mean, I don't think I've <laughs> ever heard of someone see. recording an album in their closet before. That, that's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah, I did that. <laughs> Whoa. Phenomenal. So... Yeah, let's uh, let's start <laughs> listening to some music. Yeah, let's just, check it out. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think anybody would wants to listen to us or me and Max at least talk anymore <laughs> with that kind of a story and not getting to hear the music. So let's put it on. We're going to listen to I think the first track on the album called "The Fool." <laughs> Thank you. 
Okay, this track is, I mean, I've listened to this several times now because I like it so much, but this is unlike really anything I've ever heard in a good way. I I totally love this. Actually, I love this whole record a ton. There's a lot of vocal stuff going on. I mean, just stuff that I've never even heard before and a, a lot of friends. Can we start with the vocals? What are you singing? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. If only I knew. No, um, <laughs> with, with The Fool in particular... Um, I have a thing that I do a lot in my live shows where I start looping rhythms based on just like some vocal nonsense, essentially. I got really good at making up nonsense language when I had to do the piece Only the Words Themselves Mean What They Say by Kate Soper, which requires the flutist to speak a lot of gibberish. And it turns out speaking gibberish is hard because you end up saying a lot of the same consonants and vowels over and over again. Mm -hmm. Um, So... I got really good at speaking gibberish, essentially. And so I started to use that a lot in my improv. So with The Fool in particular, I just made up some nonsense consonants and vowels and started looping some vocals on top of that in a pattern that I thought was interesting. It was supposed to be sort of light and fun because, well, it's The Fool. He's the jester. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. I've never actually thought about 
all the times that I've heard gibberish in art and music and stuff, but actually it does play a part from time to time. And I have never, ever thought about what it would be like to improvise gibberish, but that's quite a thing to think about. That's awesome. Yeah, it's wow. a fun thing to practice. Highly suggested if for some reason you <laughs> I know want what I'm to doing next time I take a shower. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> it's fun. Cool. So a lot of the entirely one-person multi-track recordings that I've listened to have a ton of electronically processed um, elements. So lots of layers, but also some kind of processing, like pitch shifting or whatever other technical words that I can't think of at the moment. And this record does it too, but there's still a lot of acoustic elements going on. And there's something unique about this balance. And I'm curious how you went about doing this and how you thought about it especially with this piece too like it starts out with vocals which bait and switch flute record with vocals at the beginning right yes and then uh, (laughs) flutes come in and then there's layers of flutes and then somewhere near the end of the track i think that it starts going and (laughs) why and how and uh what's your thought process here so i think this is entirely because of how i do like my live shows um i Mm. think when people see that they're gonna see like a flute player at a bar they're like what what am i gonna see with this like what is this about and um they can never expect what's about to happen i I mean that's why it's in my bio because i always get like i didn't know the flute could do that so i always like to show off what the flute can do in styles that people aren't familiar with before i really introduce a lot of like strange electronic sounds because frankly the strange electronic sounds can be added to most things people have heard most of those things maybe not in this context before but these are sounds that a lot of people are acquainted with whereas weirdly enough the flute stuff is a little bit less common so i like to start with the the voice and the flute to just kind of bring it to like this is what i'm about this is my sound. Here we are. And then I like to mess with it because I get bored. So with that one, again, you know, the fool, we're trying to have fun with it. We were getting goofy with it. I started doing the pitch shifting towards the end because frankly, I think it's funny. Every time I do the pitch shifter in a live show, the audience loses their mind. They always start laughing because it sounds silly. And I love that. Like, why not have a silly element in a show? Um, so that's kind of where that came from. There's also... Um, Kind of a weird thing about this one is that I did collaborate with visuals after I had already made the tracks. I had people Mm. come in and make visuals. So for this track, um, The Fool, I collaborated with uh, Dustin Uri's Puppetry, which is a shadow puppet company. And um, they put together this whole sequence about this like mad jester who basically causes an apocalypse, like the end of the the scene is just this giant explosion. And so I don't know, I, I didn't really see it with that like manic terror energy. <laughs> but now that I've seen it, it kind of influences how I think of it now. So even now looking back i'm like okay yeah once the pitch shifting starts in that's when you know that things Mm. are about to get crazy (laughs) wow i have a question sure so you've done some other soundtracks correct yes so i'm assuming those were sounds that were created for an existing visual element versus this being visual elements being created for an existing sound element Mm -hmm. which do you like better and why (laughs) 
Um, I love both. I love both. Uh, I get asked to do soundtracks a lot, and whenever I do that, everything comes down to what they've already done and how can mm-hmm. I enhance the scene and you know what can I do to support what's already there, uh, whether that's dance or plays or film. But yeah. when it comes to adding, you know, visual element afterwards once the sound is already there for me i don't have to do anything i can just kind of talk to them about you know here's an idea and a concept but i always pull in collaborators who are far more inventive on their art form than i am so i just let them play and it's so much fun for me yeah i'd love to make more sounds and then have other people add their imagery afterwards i think yeah i think it's really cool that's a really cool idea Thank you. Wow. Fantastic. Cool. So let's get nerdy about improv and composition. (laughs) So you talked about sitting in a closet and improvising some stuff and writing some notes down. I guess when I sit down and improvise, first of all, it doesn't sound that cool. And second of all, there's like layers upon layers upon layers in this track alone that go together. How, How does that work in an improv base? Do you come back and transcribe those lines and then reharmonize or do you copy paste in an editor and pitch shift to make harmonies or are you using nobody can see this video of liana just shaking her head right now saying no to all of these things <laughs> are you using pedals should i keep guessing or will you just tell us the i'll answer? just i'll just tell you um no uh i i gotta admit i'm such a music theory nerd I'm a huge music theory nerd. I love doing like analysis. It's super fun to me. I'm that nerd. But when I'm improvising, I think of nothing. So like when it comes to these layers and layers of harmonies, I quite literally have recorded down a layer. And then when it comes to the harmony loop, I just go and what comes out comes out. And if it's bad, then you didn't hear it on the album. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but I really, I really don't think about it that hard, both with the flute part and the, the voice part. I feel like I sort of intrinsically just navigate towards certain harmonies that make sense for me, just based on the language that I have been using in improv for so long. Hmm. And so once I have the thing down, I just jump in with whatever seems right at the moment. If you think that the harmonies work really well, great, because I wasn't thinking about them. <laughs> they did. And that's very interesting. That is very because interesting. Because that's nowhere near how I think about harmonies and how I improvise with harmonies. Yeah. But there's a difference, too, between our instruments in that you play a melodic line instrument, which can... I know you can do secret things on it where you play more than one note at the same time, but that's not it's typically not what the flute does. Right. Yeah. And on the accordion or keyboards, it's like instruments that are all about harmony. And so I think about it in a different way. I'm curious, actually, Max, how do you think about harmony when you're writing and dealing with that as a when drummer? I'm writing or improvising? Yes. Okay. Those are different I guess things. improvising is writing really fast in real time. <laughs> I mean... First of all, I I don't actually write that much. I mean, I do write, but uh, when I do, it's usually because I have an existing idea, mm. like usually based on like an event or or something that kind of struck me a certain way. And then there's like a musical idea that usually comes along with whatever that event or, or feeling or whatever might be. From there, I just kind of build it. If we're talking about like traditional songs, I guess mm-hmm. improvising is totally different because I play the drums. Right. Um, I've never had to think about how I think about harmony while I'm improvising. I mean, I do think about it, um, and but I think it depends on the situation. You know, if we're playing like more like normal, traditional jazz, 
there are chords that are going along and right you kind of have to think about those and the structure of things with that but i don't know you have tones on drums and they're somewhat limited but you could still make harmonies with them especially with overtones and it's it's more textural i guess and more kind of flow based rather than Mm -hmm. obviously like with like a full keyboard or or chromatic instrument or something. Yeah, interesting. I guess the way I go about it is when I'm writing and also when I'm improvising, I guess I I think of them a lot more similarly, if I'm improvising harmonies, at least. I'll audition whatever the next chord is. Like, I'll try it out and it's like, I hate it. I'll throw it away and then try a different (laughs) one. I hate it. Throw it away. Try a different one. And then maybe I'll go back to the same one if if I'm not finding anything new and just try to follow that path and kind of hack a path through the forest until I figure out what the path I like looks like. So that seems to be like all three of us are approaching things in a really different way. But Lena, you said something a little earlier that I want to refer back to that writing and improvising is different. And that is true. Do you go about that differently when you're writing harmonies versus when you're improvising on the spot? Yeah, I think so. Um, I definitely have a little bit more time when I'm looking because what I write very much with a staff, like I don't write just by um, recording myself and then transcribing a lot of when Mm -hmm. I'm writing, I do, I do do a lot of that. But the when I'm when I'm really putting stuff together, it's a lot of like taking these sketches and then putting them into the, the staff and seeing these pitches and what's happening in it and I can kind of figure out from there like what I might want to do harmonically speaking so yeah it's for a very different process for me when I'm actually trying to put pen to paper did you write out like the songs on this record not at all okay yeah yeah so for this one it's all improv based but especially when I'm doing things where like kind of like we were talking about earlier where I'm soundtracking to something that already exists that's all really time specific and a lot of times I'm not the musician either a lot of times I've written it out for other musicians so I have to be really really specific at that point so that's when I tend to actually put things down Mm, cool that makes a lot of sense yeah cool well you play not just flute but you also do vocal stuff. Clearly, we've heard that already. Um, you also play a piccolo and bass flute. And I don't know if there are other sizes of flute. I think there might be an alto flute. Or- yes, I okay, also cool. play alto flute. <laughs> right. So you play every size of Western flute that I can name mm-hmm. and maybe more. Um, also, the dizu, the Chinese bamboo flute. Thank you for contributing that dizu part on <laughs> the album that I released a little while ago. And you also play taiko uh, as well. Did any of these other instruments that you play make it onto this record too? This record in particular really just focused on flutes plus the Western standard. Yeah, the, the Western standard flute family plus the voice is what I meant to say. Gotcha. Um, I didn't really bring in any of the other instruments on this one just because I was making things so rapidly and just kind of doing things on the fly. I wasn't really trying to write anything out. Uh, Mm -hmm. So a lot of times with that, I stick to what I'm the most comfortable with. Fair enough. Yeah. So that's, that's what happened here. But I do think that there is room and interest that I kind of want to explore with adding more Dizu or Shinobue. Um, Haven't really done much taiko drumming on records because frankly, miking drums is hard. I was going to say, how would you fit those in a closet too? But yeah, I wondered about that also. (laughs) They would not fit. (laughs) (laughs) That's really cool. I I mean, just as a drummer, how did you get into that? Yeah, I am utterly obsessed with taiko drumming. I have been since I was a kid. I mean, come on. You see these like... It's awesome. 
Yeah, super powerful. Like, I particularly saw, like, Asian women playing, like, the old Daiko, which is, like, this huge drum with, like, crazy muscles and making the loudest sound I'd ever heard. And I was just like, I want to do that. <laughs> so yeah. when I uh, moved to Seattle, I tracked down uh, a Taiko club immediately to join. And so, yeah, I've been doing Taiko now for about seven years, which is pretty cool. So, I'm not going to lie, I'm kind of jealous. That's pretty sweet. It's super fun. <laughs> so another thing you mentioned a little bit back that we're going to bring back yet again is uh, that the for The Fool, you had a visual component um, that somebody created afterwards. Now, I was lucky enough to hear about this record before it came out. And so I saw all the announcements about this online record release show that you were going to do because it was released in early 2021 before vaccines were widely available we weren't doing live shows for the most part yet. And you managed to pull off doing a record release show, not just releasing a record, which a bunch of people did, but you managed to do a release show, a big event where there were video components of each of these songs by collaborators. How did you come up with that? So basically I I initially thought, okay, I made this album. I could write down what I did for each track and try to do it on like a live stream and have that as the release show. And then people could buy the album to hear like the original. And Mm -hmm. then I went, that's dumb. (laughs) Because (laughs) the audio quality of my album is going to be so much better than the audio quality that I'm going to get on this live stream. Totally. And so I kind of racked my brain for a bit and was like, how can I still make a fun event that's geared towards community that for this album release. So I thought, well, (laughs) I have some of the most talented friends in the world. I will just ask them. Um, And so basically I started asking everyone I knew if they would be interested in putting forward some sort of visual for each track. And The people that I asked, I basically let them pick which track they were most interested in doing. And believe Mm. it or not, there were no doubles. Everyone was really really? drawn to a specific tune. And they were all drawn to very, very different ones, which was so, so cool for me to watch. So I really didn't have to do much. I didn't assign people to different tracks or anything like that. People just found the ones that they want and, and called their name on it. So yeah, I got to work with choreographers, digital illustration, traditional illustration, stop motion, shadow puppetry, like I mentioned earlier, pole dancers, like all kinds of people. And it was just wildly fun to see what they wanted to create with my album. And also, I do want to throw this out there in case you have seen the videos. These people went so hard like all of these collaborators brought their a game and i swear at the beginning i told them like you know this is a really chill project like if you want to do something really simple it doesn't have to be that complicated like we'll you know make it easy as possible but every single person was like no i have this crazy idea let's bring it to life and so i just got like the coolest possible feedback with all of my my pieces amazing and wow they're on youtube still so whoever's listening right now go look them up after you finish this episode of course uh so (laughs) there was you mentioned choreographers dancers animators visual artists of the traditional non-digital realm there was one other medium that you didn't mention which is aerials (laughs) and 
you personally also do aerials and did a visual component for your own piece. I did. How did that work? How did you think about it? Were you thinking about the aerials as you recorded the music in the first place or not? So that's one question. And the second is, if not, while you were doing the aerials, were you returning to the same state? for what you were Mm. thinking about when you recorded the audio or were you reacting to it fresh? Yeah, great question. So I decided to do The Fool as an aerial performance after I had already recorded it. I really liked how that track turned out and there were a few different people who were interested in maybe doing a visual component for that one, but they were like between a few different uh, tunes, which is cool. Mm. And looking at that, I was like, you know, I feel like I should do one of the visuals. And if I'm going to do any one of them, I should do the fool because the fool is most traditionally represented as hanging by one foot upside down. And it turns out if you're an aerialist, that's a thing that you can do. (laughs) I really wanted to make choreography in an aerial art form that sort of ended up with that very iconic position. So that's what I set out to do. And it was my first putting together of aerial choreography for myself. I've been doing aerial now for about five, six years, but I'd never really put together an act before. So it was really fun and really scary, (laughs) but I really had so much fun doing it. So I, yeah, it was a really unique experience for me. I don't know that I ended up in the exact same headspace because I feel like when I'm in the, uh, the musical thing, I'm not thinking about my body in the way that I am with Ariel, not to mention (laughs) filming the Ariel stuff often meant doing certain moves over and over again for different camera angles. And so it was also just physically demanding in a way that I haven't really worked with before. So that was super neat to do. And I just had a blast doing it. Um, But also... Uh, Kind of fun fact, my cover photo for the album is also from the time in which I was doing that video shoot. Because if you pay attention to the album cover, I'm actually upside down. Um, I'm I'm actually hanging Mm. from my aerial rig, which is why my hair and my earrings are all standing up. Um, (laughs) It's because I'm actually upside down. So Cool. Wow. Yeah. Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) There is a lot going on there, and that's really, really cool. I, for one, really enjoyed just watching the video, but you also did a really great job hanging out in the YouTube chat room and stoking conversation and keeping things going and making interactive and talking about the different performers' work and also answering questions. It was a really cool live experience. And that's Mm -hmm. also just kind of different because if you were to go to a live performance and watch a dance performance that's accompanying a new work that's also being played live, you're not going to work you really shouldn't. Etiquette demands that you don't talk during the show, but this is something that we get to do when it's online and digital. So I'm curious, now that live performances have started up again for and for a bit now, thank goodness, do you think you'll ever do a collaborative event like this again? Like a digital and intentionally digital? Yeah, I think so. I think there's room for that. I, I don't know that I'd want to do it right now because I feel like people are oversaturated with online premieres and things like that. But You know, there's something to be said about the mass accessibility of an online performance that is just physically impossible in a live situation. Right. And not only that, but if I'm doing something that's in person and I want to collaborate with as many people as I did on that album, it's almost impossible to get that many people to get all of their schedules together to make all of that work. Really, what I did with the Terra album release show was I wanted to make something that would be almost physically impossible to do 
Mm. in person. And so, yeah, it turned out to be such a great time that, yeah, I would absolutely do that again. I also just realized that I've been referring to the aerial act as the fool, and that was not correct. That was the hanged man, obviously, because it was hanging by a foot. Anyway, that's that. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. Well, I think me and Max have jawed on for a little while. Maybe we should listen to some more music. Let's check out another track. Cool. We listened to the first one earlier, so let's listen to the last one. We're going to check out now Inverted Ace of Cups. Thank you. 
Wow. Okay, so most of this record, all of this record, except for this one track, is entirely you. But this is the first time that we've heard a different instrument in the mix. How did you pick who would get to play here? And how did you pick this tune in particular for it? Okay, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Ooh, secret. Initially, when I came out with the idea for the Tarot album, I actually wanted to give every single track away to anyone who wanted to put an overdub onto any track and then re-release those all as the inverted version of the album. Hence, this is why this one's called Inverted uh, Two of Cups. But frankly, I gave that email out at the same time as all of the other visual collaborators. And what ended up happening was the only person who responded was Ray. Oh, interesting. Uh, (laughs) And so I said, all right, Ray, you get your pick. Choose any track you want. Um, And so Ray chose the Two of Cups. um, And I'm so delighted that he did that because I thought that what he came up with was so, so cool. And it fit with that track so well. So yeah, there could have been more and it could have been a more complicated process. But just by the way that it happened, Ray got free reign of whatever he wanted to do. Wow. It's just a really cool blend that sounds like it was improvised together at the same time, which is clearly not possible with how you recorded it in a remote context. Also, the number of Ray Larson's and the number of Leanna Keith's on this track makes that impossible. How did that work? How is it so interactive in that way? I think Ray has some of the most tremendous ears uh, mm-hmm. in the world. I mean, just... Uh, second that. absolutely outstanding when it comes to finding where to be. And I think that was part of the reason why I think that's part of the reason why Ray was one of the only people who decided to do this project because um, the other musicians that I talked to were very much like, you know, yeah, I like the album. I'd love to play on it, but frankly, I don't see where I fit. Ray found a place um, in a way that I thought was just brilliant and so i there wasn't a lot of back and forth here it was mostly just you know here's the track see what you want to do with it if you wanted to blow over the entire thing awesome if you want to take it in a totally different direction awesome however you want to do it i'm game and yeah ray just has that 
amazing ability to find where's the moment that he needs to come out of the texture and where does he need to be a part of it. And I think that this track in particular really lets him shine in that aspect. I love this track. <laughs> yeah, me too. Definitely. Is there is there a visual part to this track? There is a visual part to this track, but not the inverted version because Ray okay. was the only one that ended up joining me on that project in that way. We decided to release that track as like a bonus thing, um, specifically gotcha. for the buying the album rather than being on the album release show. Cool. This this track like took me to a space, like a very specific visual space. I'm I'm really curious to see kind of what other people came up with. I want to hear what this visual space is, Max. <laughs> yeah, me okay. too. Okay. <laughs> Imagine a space forest. Ooh. Like a forest, but in outer space, and then these little microscopic background sounds that were kind of just there. Are those flutes? I'm assuming. Probably, yeah. yeah okay. I can't imagine it's anything besides. Yeah, words. I mean, it's, <laughs> I don't know how you. It, it was at times. It just sounds like almost like an orchestra of sorts is just creating this crazy like space forest, and there's just kind of like a meandering journey through it. I don't know. I love that. It's awesome. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, yeah, the um the visual for this one on the album is without Ray's trumpet, but if you do right. want to look at it, the that one is. Uh, depicting an overflowing goblet um, amongst like a pond with like lily pads and things like that. And Whoa. so you can see the artist <laughs> painted in as it goes because it's a, a time lapse of their painting. Oh, cool. So, mm. well, that's really yeah. cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ace of Cups and Inverted Ace of Cups are definitely great. And it's really interesting to hear them side by side because of how complete and full they both feel. Ah, I love that. The non-inverted one doesn't feel empty like it's missing Ray's trumpet at all. But as soon as you hear Ray's trumpet, it's like, it's supposed to be there. And it wouldn't work without it. You wouldn't believe that it would work without it, but it does. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I feel that way, especially after I heard what he added to it. I was just like, oh, yeah, no, this is this is it. This is the way it's supposed to be. One thing also that you might find fun. That was actually the first track that I improvised for the album. So, yeah. Very interesting. Okay, so. We've talked about Ace of Cups. We've talked about inverted Ace of Cups. And I've heard that you can make flute noises out of anything, even (laughs) remotely flute-like, including coffee cups. So how does this work? Yeah. Okay. So basically, the way that you make any cup thing into a flute is you just need to create essentially an embouchure hole of some kind. You can kind of think of it as like blowing across a bottle you're just looking to make a small vortex, essentially. Okay, but coffee cups have this are giant. Like yeah. they're not small like a beer bottle or no. something. No, so basically what I do, and I just happen to have a coffee cup on me, so here we go, is I put I swear I didn't ask Leanna to do this. <laughs> I put my thumbs on the sides of the cup. Um, and then you basically stick your chin on the inside to make as small of a space as possible. And then you blow. Whoa. Amazing. And that's <laughs> how that works. You heard it here, folks. That was a <laughs> coffee cup that was not a flute. Yeah. And so you can just, you can adjust the pitch by moving your thumb. So like the wider it is or the closer together they are, then you'll, you'll be able to change the pitch. So it's a dumb trick that I picked up 
in Toronto by one of the greatest flute players that I've ever met. And yeah, she just taught me how to do that while we had some tea. So I will take that forever as my party trick. Incredible. Well, I've just had a blast learning all about this record, the flute, coffee mugs, and your musical career in general. Me too. Thank you so much for joining us. We're coming close to time here, but I wanted to ask... Where can our listeners listen to more of your stuff, flutes, coffee cups, and otherwise? Uh, you can find me on uh, all the social medias. My name is Leanna Lee Keith, but you can find me on Instagram as Leanne Ninja. Uh, you can find me on Facebook as Leanna Keith Flutist, Twitter, Leanna Lee Keith, Bandcamp, Leanna Keith, and uh, Patreon, also Leanna Keith. So you'll, you can find me on all those places. Sweet. And I'm sure if you find one of them, they all link to each other and you'll figure it out. Exactly. So <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. We yeah, thank you for having me. A ton. wonderful time. This is a great album. Indeed. Thank you again. Thank you. You've been listening to Jazz Talk Seattle, a monthly podcast hosted by Josh Howe and Max Holmberg. 